You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. Law of Lift, Part 3. If you've missed Sessions 1 and 2, I am so sorry. You may be a little confused as to what we want to share today, but we've been going through different relationships, right, of different covenants and scriptures that God's theocratic covenants in particular. And I want to double back this morning a little bit and remind us that the law existed even before the Sinai Covenant. My friends, universal laws have always existed. The Sinai Covenant confirmed the laws already in existence up to that point, some of which the Sinai Covenant reiterates for us. And if you're looking at the outline, you can take a look at the scriptures with parentheses, and those are where the Sinai Covenant confirmed the law that was even given prior to that. So what were some of these universal laws that predated Sinai? Well, just a quick sweep of the book of Bitter Sheet Genesis in chronological order will show you that law existed way before the Sinai Covenant. We see that the Shabbat, right, was instituted way before Sinai. Genesis Chapter 2, on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and rested on the seventh day from all of his work, which he had done. Of course, that's reiterated in the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20. Marriage was instituted way before Sinai, later on in that chapter. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Don't let anybody tell you they don't understand who and what a woman is. Don't believe it. It's in the word of God. Sacrifices were instituted way before Sinai with, Moses, with Abraham and with Noah. The fact that the flood showed us that man sinned and broke Adonai's known laws at that time. We move forward in scriptures, clean and unclean animals delineated. Genesis chapter 7 reiterated in the Sinai Covenant in Leviticus chapter 11, the shedding of blood for justice matters. Genesis 9, 6, again reiterated in the Exodus account at Sinai in Exodus 21. Circumcision before Sinai, Genesis chapter 17. We talked about that at length last Shabbat, reiterated in Leviticus 12, 2. Moving forward in Genesis, Abraham kept God's laws. Genesis 26, 5 says, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my chukim, my statutes, and my laws before Sinai, there was laws. Tithing was in place as a law. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, Melchizedek, Genesis 14. Again, it's reiterated in the Sinai covenant in Deuteronomy 14. Sodom and Gomorrah, the story, Genesis 18, another testimony a story that we see that men broke God's known laws at that time, again reiterated in the Sinai Covenant in Leviticus 20. And you can take a look all through these 13 aspects. Joseph, as we finish off the book of Genesis, chapter 39, verse 9, he understood with Potiphar's wife that he understood adultery, constituted great wickedness against sin, against God. Again, in the Ten Commandments, reiterated this command against adultery. And the whole point of this small list, it's a small list just taken through the book of Genesis, is that there is a law of conscience that was, has existed since the creation of mankind. And mankind was judged based on that law of conscience. Shaul says it like this at the bottom of your outline, Romans chapter 2, verse 12, for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. 
For when Gentiles, again, not a derogatory term, just means of the nations outside of Israel, who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness And between themselves, their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men according to my good news through Messiah Yeshua. So why are laws needed? Shaul wrote to his mentee, young mentee Timothy, the following, 1 Timothy 1 on your sheets, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate. For the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So law then is is enacted against all of those and many more works of the flesh, against the fornicators, sodomites, etc., Now, we've been looking at various relationships, again, in the first two sessions between various covenants in this series. And so I wanted to focus today on another, in my opinion, a critical relationship. And that is the relationship between law and spirit. There was a question that some early Yeshua followers had in Rome As it relates to our ongoing study. Why, they asked Paul, as followers of Yeshua, why are we no longer under the law's condemnation? You see, Shaul was attempting to explain and resolve for them the overriding problem of humanity, which is sin. He elaborates that Adonai has given them as newfound followers of Yeshua... A way to resolve that problem. And it is a big problem. And he explains in Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore now what? No condemnation to those who are in Messiah Yeshua. Who do not walk according to the flesh. But according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life. Underline that in your scriptures or on your iPads or whatever you're taking notes with. For the law of the spirit of life in Messiah Yeshua has made me free from the law of sin and death. Verse 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. You see, not that the law was weak, our flesh was weak. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned Sin in the flesh by Yeshua's perfect life. What's the result? Verse 4. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Man, this is powerful stuff. Now notice here, because of who Yeshua is and everything he has done in history on behalf of all mankind who have broken the Torah... There is now, he says, quote, what? No condemnation for the believer. Baruch Hashem, this means we're not doomed. (laughs) We're not doomed. We're freed from the penalty of sin. Shaul writes that not only the believer who... He writes that only the believer, though, who is, quote, in union with the Messiah, Yeshua will not be condemned for sin. You've got to be in union with him. Now note here also that Shaul, he's not pitting uh, the Messiah's teaching against the Sinai covenant. He is saying that the law of the spirit of life is the Sinai covenant properly understood and properly applied by the power of Ruach HaKodesh within us. Earlier in his letter to the Romans, Shaul explained that it is the Sinai covenant improperly understood and improperly perverted by our sinful nature into what we could call a legalistic system of earning God's approval by our own works and efforts, which gets us nowhere. 
My friends, within the universe, there is a law so important that it is known biblically as the law of the spirit of life. This law means that whatever zoe, whatever life is, it is all in the Messiah Yeshua. It's not in anything else or anyone else. Within Yeshua is Ruach HaChaim, the spirit of life, the very energy, the very being of life. But how does the spirit give life? Well, look at those verses again in Romans 8. Look at verse 2 again. The spirit gives life by freeing us from Sin and death. You see, if we have the spirit of life, then we naturally do not have the spirit of sin and death. The spirit frees us to live as Yeshua lived, as the active energy of life is given to us. We sense with Yeshua a depth of life. We sense a richness in our lives, right? We sense a fullness of life. It's really indescribable at times. We live with koach. We live with power. Power over what? Power over life's pressures. Power over life's strains. Power over life's bondages. Even when we sin and guilt starts setting in, there is a tug. How many of you know that holy tug? That power, that ruach kodesh, is drawing us back to the Father. We ask forgiveness. We ask for removal of the guilt. Praise God. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. And immediately upon asking, the Spirit instills an instantaneous assurance for us of His cleansing. So how does the Spirit give life? Verse 2 says, by freeing us from sin and death. But it goes on in verse 3 to say, the Spirit gives life, Paul writes, by doing what the law could not do. Adonai did what his own teachings, his own instructions, and his own commands could not of themselves do by sending Yeshua as a human being who had a truly human nature, yet unlike that of other humans because it was not sinful. Yeshua encountered temptations just like those you and I face. But he conquered them without sinning by the power of the Spirit. The Father sent Yeshua in order to deal with sin, to show us that nothing less could overcome sin. Sin against a perfectly holy God. It has to be punished by death according to the Torah. And so by the Father executing the punishment against sin in human nature, by means of the execution of sinless Yeshua, this requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us and not merely in Yeshua. Why? Because we are united with him and have died with him. Turn to your neighbor and tell him to wake up. How does the spirit give life? By freeing us from sin and death. By doing what the law could not do. And look at verses 3 and 4. The spirit gives life by Yeshua providing righteousness for us. You see, when you and I trust in Yeshua, the Spirit of God fulfills righteousness in us. God takes the righteousness, Adonai takes the righteousness of his son Yeshua and credits it to us. Now notice that the Spirit fulfills righteousness in us, not by us. We do not and we cannot even come close to keeping the law perfectly. But Yeshua did. If his righteousness cannot be credited and fulfilled in us, might as well just give it up. We're hopeless. We're doomed. Scripture tells us that the righteousness, that righteousness, though, is not credited to everybody. It is only fulfilled in those who do not walk after the flesh, but who walk after the spirit. If we trust the Messiah Yeshua for righteousness, then the Father gives us righteousness. If we trust the Messiah Yeshua for life's purpose, for meaning and significance, then the Father gives us meaning. He gives us purpose. He gives us significance. 
If we trust Yeshua to lead us through a certain trial or a need that we have, then the Father leads us through that trial and he leads us through that need being met. So in summary, the law is operative against the works of the flesh at all times, including today. And so we've titled this session, The Law of Lift, this series, The Law, the Torah, can be compared. Now, it's a crude analogy, I know. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a biologist, but I still don't know who a woman is. I'm sorry to keep harping on it. All right. The, law can be, the Torah can be compared to the law of gravity. Gravity is all around us at all times. And it's always operative. Gravity is effective. It dominates until it is met by a higher law, the law of lift or the law of buoyancy force that a few of us were talking about at the men's meeting after men's prayer meeting this week, the other night. Gravity is operational until a higher law is introduced. The law of lift, or the law of buoyancy force, how many of you know that does not nullify gravity? What does it do? It causes us to rise above the pull of gravity. We're operating under a higher law. Shaul wrote as follows, Romans chapter 8 on your sheet. Therefore, verse 12, brethren, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Why? Because the law is operational at all times against the work of the flesh. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so Shaul or Paul states here that we are foolish to focus our lives upon such a weak thing as the flesh. Foolish to live as though we are in debt and obligated to something. Something that caves in so easily, doesn't it? To sickness and disease. So often caves to sin and shame. So often. If we follow after the flesh, then in following the flesh, we experience what the flesh will experience. However, Paul says, if we put to death the deeds of the body, we shall live. Now, notice here in Paul's writings in Romans 8 that the power to mortify the deeds of the body comes through the spirit. We deny the evil deeds. And then the spirit gives the strength to deaden and subdue their strength. We are involved just as the Spirit is involved. The Spirit will not destroy the strength of sin unless we exercise our will and work to destroy it our se- uh, alongside Him. Likewise, we cannot work and will it apart from the Spirit. Both the Spirit and we have to be involved. Each of us is going to do its part. His part, her part, if we desire the evil deeds of the body to be put to death. The spirit, how many of you know, he's not going to override our choices, though. Our part is to will and follow the spirit, to mortify the evil deeds and begin to deny them. The spirit's part, then, is to deaden, subdue, and eventually destroy the strength of the evil deeds. You see the partnership there? We know that the conquest of evil deeds is a continual. It is a continuous struggle as long as you and I are living in the flesh. The tense of the verb there in Romans 8, that last word live, the tense of the verb live is a continuous action. It is a habitual action. We must continue to follow the spirit and continue to mortify the evil deeds of the body. So in summary here again, the new covenant introduces a higher law, the law of the spirit of life in Messiah Yeshua. The law of the spirit of life, again, does not nullify the law contained in in, in Torah. It causes us to rise above it, the pull of the penalty of it, because it's a higher law. And like the aeronautical principle of the law of lift, 
the law of the spirit of life sets us free from the downward pull, downward pull of gravity, but the downward pull of sin. Again, just so that nobody gets the impression, if you're listening on the podcast or even here, that I'm anti-law. Interestingly enough, in the New Covenant Scriptures, there are over 1,050 commands. Many more than the Sinai Covenant 613, it's votes. Covering every phase of one's life in our relationship to Adonai and to our fellow man. Now, to restate by coming at this with a little different set of scriptures, I want to give us four truths today by which we enter into the spirit of life. Number one, Messiah fulfilled the letter of the law and all of its requirements and then was put to death as the atonement for Israel, bearing upon himself the full penalty of it. We too... Number two, by faith, die with Messiah and are thereby dead to the law and its penalties. Paul wrote like this, Romans 7.1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? That's interesting. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband or concerning the husband. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Messiah that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead. That resurrection life, that law of lift, that's the life we're living. And as we live that life in the spirit, gravity, as analogous to Torah, cannot operate against us, its penalties, because we've entered into and are operating in a higher and greater law. That we should bear fruit to God. Verse 5, for when we were in the flesh... The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. That's why I'm using the New King James Version here, a little more of a word-for-word translation than the TLV or the CJB, because these are are, are even closer, I believe, to the original Greek than some of these others, and so we have to deal with it. With the phraseology here. It becomes clear in this passage that what we have spent time the past couple of sessions discussing. That before you and I trusted in the Messiah Yeshua. Our problem was not the law. The problem we had was sin. Sin is that which wreaked havoc with our lives. Can I get an amen from somebody? Yeah. But when Messiah Yeshua came into our lives. We were released from our bondage to sin, and any legalistic relationship we may have previously had with Adonai's teaching. That's why Shaul, that's what he means here when he says that we were made to die to the law. Before the new birth, we related to the law in a legalistic fashion, and that relationship had to change. Thank God. In Messiah Yeshua, it did change. Once our relationship to sin was changed through our becoming a new creation, the real value of the law for us began now to come to light. And in verse 4 of that Romans passage, look with me at it again. Paul says, it was not the law that has been made dead. It is not the law that has been canceled. It's not the law that has been abrogated. Nor are we as Yeshua followers made dead in the sense of we no longer somehow respond to its truth. That's not what he's saying. Rather, we have been made dead, not to all the law, but to a couple of aspects of it. Number one, a 
couple of aspects we're made dead to. We're dead to the lost capacity to stir up sin in us. The capacity of the law to make us sin is not a fault of the law. It's a fault in ourselves because we have this sinful propensity to misuse the law, making it, again, into a framework of legalism instead of what it is. It's a framework of grace. And number two, the second aspect we've been made dead to in the law is, praise God, its penalties and its punishments. It is through Yeshua's atoning death that we as believers have been made dead to the penalty set forth by the law for disobeying it. To illustrate via a metaphor, Paul says that because a death has taken place, we're now free to belong to someone else. That is, we're no longer married to legalism. But we're free to marry and be united with the one who's been raised from the dead, Yeshua the Messiah. A death's taken place. Look with me at verse 5 again. Now, when Paul writes here flesh, he does not just mean, you know, the housing. He's talking about all the housing, yes, but all the thoughts, all the emotions, right? All the physical urges that comprise human nature. We can easily misinterpret this text, and it has been misinterpreted, that, you know, the spirit is good and the body is bad, and that is Greek, that is Gnostic thought. It's not what he's talking about. Look at verse 6. Because Yeshua paid the penalty for our disobedience to the law, death, that was the penalty, we've been released from that aspect of the law, the aspect of it which causes non-believers... To produce, quote, fruit for death, verse 5. My friends, today as followers of Yeshua, we have not been released from every aspect of the law. Adonai has written the law in our hearts. So clearly if the Lord, saying through Jeremiah 31, if he's written the law in our hearts, we are not released then from every aspect of it. But we've been released from its penalties and punishments. In verse 3, the death of a woman's husband does not free her, right, from other aspects of the law, but from that one aspect. Paul writes to a different group of believers in Galatians. He says this on your sheet in Galatians chapter 2. Verse 19, for I through the law died to the law. What does he mean by that? Well, he realized that what the Torah really required was not legalism, but Trusting faithfulness. Then in the moment he destroyed for himself the bondage of legalism. That I might live to God. I have been crucified with Messiah. It is no longer I who live. But Messiah lives in me. And the life with which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Messiah died in vain. Truth number three regarding the law of the spirit of life, Messiah Yeshua was raised from the dead, resurrection, the law of, lo- of lift, so to speak. And guess what? You and I rise with him. We also have risen from the dead. Remember that day when that happened in your life? Paul writes Romans chapter 6 verse 5. For if we have been united in the likeness of his death, which we have, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. Final truth. Verse 4, excuse me, truth number 4. We then receive Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and we enter into and operate by a higher law. Again, the law of the Spirit of life in Messiah Yeshua. We're instructed by Paul here to not walk after the, in the flesh by which the Torahic law would operate against us. Rather, we are to walk in the Spirit by which we fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. So let's read that. 
I say then, Galatians 5, 16, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Yeah, that's true. Look at verse 18, critical verse. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. That just sounds so wacky to us as messianics. If you're led by the Spirit, you and I are operating under a higher law, the law of lift, so to speak. Now, look at verse 19. The works of the flesh are evident, which, which are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. So let's unpack. Verse 16 He's alluding here, actually, Paul is, to a prophecy from Ezekiel chapter 36, which we read in session one. The one who walks according to the Spirit is going to walk in God's statutes and is going to obey his rules. The Spirit of God without the law of God is contentless. While the law of God without the Spirit of God is powerless. That's the relationship. We're going to get into that at Shavuot. I'm ahead of myself. Paul did not pit the spirit against the Torah. But the usual Christian interpretations do. To Paul, the spirit of God and the Torah fit hand in glove. But he does, however, contrast our human physical inclination against the leading of God's spirit. And even when we don't want to sin, he says, we know, sometimes we do. Our human bodies and our minds, they rebel against God's authority. And the follower of Yeshua, that's us who's trying to follow Adonai. We have a war going on, don't we? Within our heart, within each of our hearts, a war within our minds, a war within our thoughts every minute with our speech and our behaviors. All the desires of the human being are in opposition to the desires of the spirit. And that is what confounds us and perplexes us and frustrates us in our desire to grow, in our attempts to be better Talmudim disciples, to improve ourselves and to earnestly make teshuva, repentance. We have to understand that the sinful, quote, old nature, the flesh, is utterly irredeemable. That's why no self, hear my heart, no self-help measures or psychotherapeutic methods can enable us to please God. These are based on having our mind controlled by our old nature, which is death. Rather than by the spirit, which is life and shalom. Shalom, what's that? Peace, nothing missing, nothing broken, contentment, health, wholeness, etc. Everything secular and popular psychology promise, but they cannot deliver. Paul says we have a new nature. And only by letting our mind be controlled by our new nature through the spirit, that's the only thing that offers any real hope to us. All other psychologies ultimately will fail. Oh, that's a hard word for some. Maybe you're involved in some therapy right now. I'm just telling you what the Bible says and infers in my opinion. The Spirit of God dwells within us as followers of Yeshua. He makes His home. He takes up residence. He lives within us just like you and I live in our homes. The power of the Spirit removes us from identifying with our old nature. Whatever spirit, my friends, dwells within us, it is to that spirit, right? That which we belong. If we've got the spirit of selfishness within us, we belong to a spirit of selfishness and are known as a person who is selfish. 
If we have the spirit of complaining, we belong. Listen, we belong to a spirit of complaining. It is a spirit. And among Jewish people, man, I got to get that spirit out of people by the power of the Lord. Because it's in our, it seems like it's in our kishkas. We love to complain. We're known as complainers. Why? Because we have the spirit of complaining. Go back to verse 18 again. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You see, it's not a matter, my friends, of choosing between the Spirit and the law as most people interpret that verse. Paul is telling, in context, these non-Jewish believers that if they obey God's desires for their lives and for their behavior, they are not, quote, under the law. It doesn't mean you're not under the authority of God's commandments. That's not what he's saying here. That's not how he's using the term under the law. Under the law implies being obligated to the entire law as a Jew. But Paul's writing to Gentiles who are not under the law. So he's saying, yes, it's true you're not under the law, Gentile believers, but you're still led by the Spirit. The Spirit will interpret the Torah for you and I and cause you and I to live the Torah in a way that's not marked by the slavery of a legal system. I cannot tell you, and this is said lovingly, I'm praying, we get in the Messianic movement so rabbit-trailed on this stuff. Oh, when it comes to Shabbat, you know. Rabbi, should I go out and eat lunch with my friend on Shabbat? Listen, these are good questions. These are questions that we are designed to deal with. That's a legalistic interpretation of what the Shabbat command is. The command is, All of your regular vocation, that don't do. If you're, a, if you're a cheese taster, well, maybe that's breaking the law for you, but most of us aren't. We don't want to take on more yokes and bondages. Shabbat's about freeing us from all these bondages, and it's rest. And we get, and listen, our people are no better. We've got 39 different levels of what work is. You can't turn on an electric switch because that constitutes work. It gets crazy. Yes, my rabbinic brothers, it's crazy. It's, not, it's a fence around the fence, around the fence, around the law. And God's freed us from the legalism of it. All of your regular vocation on Shabbat, that don't do. Now, that's still an issue for some whose bosses will just not give the Shabbat up and they have to come to work. I get it. But don't take on more yokes that are not intended for you. Paul understood that a Gentile believer, yeah, they had obligations to Torah. What commandments applied to them? He answers, he says, with self-obvious examples. He says, it is self-evident. Keeping Torah, led by the Spirit, meant rejecting the works of the flesh. And he gives us a list with several examples. What were the examples? He said sexual immorality. These are the... Works of the flesh that Paul details out for us. This is these Gentile believers here in Galatia. This is what their obligations to Torah are against sexual immorality. In the Greek, it's meaning all illicit sexual relations, including prostitution, including adultery, including fornication, all sexual relationships outside of marriage, out of bounds. Uncleanness, that's a broader term, actually, to include all those things that actually lead up to the actual sin of fornication, including pornography. That leads up to it. Lewdness, work of the flesh, shameless, insolent disregard for moral decency. Lasciviousness is another word. He says idolatry, work of the flesh. What's that? Open recognition of false gods. Sorcery. The Greek word is pharmakia. You've heard of that, right? Taking of drugs for non-medical reasons. My friends, it is a form of occultism. It opens us up to the spiritual realm, not in a good way. 
hatred, personal animosities, personal vendettas. It's a work of the flesh. Anger, bitterness toward other people, contentious, contentions, jealousies, outbirths of wrath, discord, all variant, at variance all the time with people, selfish ambitions, winning over followers to come against somebody else. That's a selfish ambition. Dissensions is a different word. Winning over followers to come against leaders. And heresies, false doctrines, spreading that to others as well. The works of the flesh are all prohibitions that are derived from where? From the law. It's not an exhaustive list. Paul punctuates the list with the words, and the like. For example, he used this short litany of sins as a way of saying, hey, it's not difficult to figure out what laws of Torah apply to the spirit-led, God-fearing Gentile believer. The God-fearing Gentile believer is not under the law as a Jewish person, but that does not mean he or she does not have obligations to the law by this short list. You see, these Gentile believers, these guys were on the fence, man. They were just about ready, as I mentioned last week, to get circumcised. Why? In order to please the influencers that had come in in terms of their identification with the Jewish community. And there were others who were just about ready to fall back into their old lifestyle of paganism because it seemed so much easier for them to live that old nature than it was to try and live a marginalized, a life being a marginalized follower of Yeshua with the Spirit of God. And how many times have you seen that? How many times have you seen people come out of the world, they come to the Lord, and in a short period of time, decision time comes, commitment time comes, and they slip back into seemingly what they think is easier that compromised lifestyle. My friends, there are Yeshua followers who do not take these words seriously. Who think they could just, you know, continue on in fornication, continue on in drug use, continue on in adultery and the other sins enumerated here without having to pay the price. They suppose, well, a loving God will just accept me regardless of my sins or that having once long ago, years ago, I professed my faith, I've got my fire insurance for heaven. No, the phrase, quote, those who practice such things is an interesting phrase. You see, it's not intended for those who just fall short of perfection who are excluded from the kingdom. It is not those who fall short who are excluded, but for those who ex- would exclude all, but those who willfully, it says, continue to practice their sins instead of turning from them sincerely to seek God's forgiveness. Maybe that profession of faith meant nothing because of what, the way you're living now. Maybe you really taste and see that the Lord is good. Maybe you just didn't have a taste, a real taste. You didn't repent. You said you repented, but repentance is, is action, turning. Paul's dealing with people who are trying to understand here, and they don't have a Messianic Judaism 101 book to go by. And they're living a lifestyle that's so different from anything they come out of. And they're truly new creations, and now they're having to learn to walk this way. There are some Yeshua followers who think that we somehow lose our old nature when we accept the Messiah and get filled with the Spirit of God. That is not the case. Our flesh is our lower nature that is under Hasatan's influence. But after coming to the Lord, Adonai gives us a new nature to oppose our old nature on a minute-by-minute basis. And in that vein, I've often wondered why it seems, why it seems, The Hasatan, the adversary, can sometimes get more out of his people than God can get out of his people. Now, if you grew up like me on the East Coast or Midwest, and you were out on the college campus, you would have inevitably seen or run into the Hare Krishnas on the campus, and I'm telling you, it's 10 below zero, and they're out there. They are committed. My friends, is the new nature weaker than the old nature? I don't think so. Does the flesh have a stronger hold than the Spirit of God? I don't think so. Is our will a little weak sometimes? Me thinks so. 
Do we get a little complacent in business as usual with the Lord? Methinks so. April, if you'd come up. Let's look finally at these verses 22 and 23. Let's read them again. But the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, shalom, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And so when Paul spoke about walking by the Spirit, he's not referring to following after mystical visions or revelations. No. Instead, what did he do? He provided a list of of attributes that describe a spirit-led person. It's a checklist of sorts. Well, I'm filled with the spirit, Rabbi. Well, okay, let me, let, me look, let me look at my list. Let me look at my list. The Gentile believer is not under the law in the same way as a Jewish believer, but Paul thinks it's obvious that a Gentile believer here in Galatia is beholden to all the moral character qualities derived from the law. And he begins to list these qualities and terms them the fruit of the Spirit, which can be said a different way. It can be understood as evidence that the Spirit of God is in one's life. Right? Fruit does not come from efforts of, let's say, legalistic rule following. No, fruit grows naturally, right, out of trust. Yeshua said a tree is judged by the fruit, by its fruit. Fruit results from planted seeds. Isn't that right, Cecily, right? You have to plant seeds. When seeds grow, what do they do? They bear fruit, hopefully. Fruit represents outward, visible behavior. My friends, it is necessary, it is, to argue the objective truth of the gospel as you and I share with people about the Lord and His Son, Yeshua. But I believe, and I've been witness to this and I know it's true because I believe a more powerful and possibly even more convicting form of evidence in our sharing is the fruit of Ruach HaKodesh in our lives. Yes, we must do the apologetical work. Yes, we must share the written gospel. But many people have come to the Lord probably more than actually even have opened the scriptures and read Isaiah 53 is seeing the fruit in our lives as we share that message. What is that fruit? Well, he gives us descriptions of it. Love, right? Not eros, love. Not the sexual love. Not the philia, the affection love. It's the agape word, right? The love of intelligent comprehension united with corresponding blessed purpose. God wants us to have the agape type of love toward our fellow man. He says joy. Let's not be the joyless believers. Simcha, joy. Deep, abiding, inner rejoicing that is far more, my friends, than happiness. Amen. That is just a momentary feeling from a situation that occurs. No. Do you and I exhibit that unmistakable joy, that unshakable joy, regardless of all that sir is going on in your life? That's a fruit of the Spirit. Peace, abiding, and assured quietness of soul brought on by confidence in the Lord. That's what I want every day. Do we see people that have that courage and have that inward peace? Long-suffering. Well, maybe we should wipe that one out because I don't like that one at all. Patience, I don't like it. But it means, actually, in the Greek, evenness of temper, endurance during circumstances or problems with other people, like that. Kindness, right? Gentleness. Don't go around blasting people. Come on, somebody. Kindness. Are we caring and understanding toward everyone we meet? It's challenging. But it's a fruit of the Spirit. Goodness. What's that? Readiness to do righteous deeds toward other people. Do we want the best for other people? Faithfulness. What's that? Trusting in Adonai. Beyond salvation. Every day for all matters of our lives. Gentleness. A submissive spirit. A humble spirit toward God and man. 
It is not weakness. Gentleness is not weakness. It is a controlled strength. That's gentleness. And finally, self-control, right? That's a spiritual discipline, temperance. It's an assertion over our passions and desires. And Paul points out that the Torah has no prohibitions against the spirit, the fruit of the spirit. Against such there is no law. In other words, there's no law against things like this. Stand with me today. Thank you, Lord, for the richness of your word. Had somebody come up to me after the service last week, and all good intentioned, and said, man, you know, I listened to what you said, and I, I, just, I just am confused. I don't understand. My friends, studying the word of God is that nasty four-letter word, work. It is for a simpleton, but it takes work. And you and I know it may take 20 times of reading that same passage for that aha moment to click in your spirit. It takes work. And so we're digging trenches. We're getting out a little deeper in these waters with our floaties because the word of God is rich for a lifetime and much more. We're never going to cover the rich, the depths of the word of God. And these are some difficult passages. And there's translation issues and there's Christian interpretations and there's Jewish... So we're working here today together. We're working here today together. This is not a rah-rah message. It's let's drill down and let's understand our identity in Yeshua. And let's begin walking as true believers walk. And let's put aside the works of the flesh. And let's partner with the Holy Spirit toward that end. And so God told Moses to tell Aaron and his sons how to bless the children of Israel. And we do that every week here. And the scripture records this blessing. It's from the Lord. And it's, May the Lord bless you and keep you this day. May Adonai make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you this day. May the Lord lift up his countenance over you. And grant you this fruit of shalom. In the name of the Sar Shalom, the Prince of all peace, Yeshua of Nazareth. And all of us who are with him to the end said, Amen. 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 Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Hebrew will begin in about 30 minutes back here in the sanctuary. My wife and I would love to greet you out in the lobby for Kiddush. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes, or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through Scripture.